0: Hello, everybody. You're listening to and watching Wake Up with Patty Catter, and I am your host, Patty Catter. Today, I have David Reed with me on the show. David is an Army veteran who's retired from the Army, and he's also a retired law enforcement uh, policeman. So, hi, David. Welcome.
1: Hi. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm happy that you could be here finally. We've toyed with the idea for a while. Um, So... Some of my followers might have seen me post a little bit about somebody who sent me some cool things from Air Force 1 and it was David. <laughs> so yeah. um I'm going to go ahead and and just let you tell my listeners a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, uh you don't get to be my age without having more than one life. And you know, you you wind up there's more than one significant event, more than one thing, so it's kind of hard to say I am this. And I think that's true of everybody. I started out as a young man, um, and I wanted to join the military. I wanted to be a cop. I wanted to do those things. This was in the 70s when those were not attractive concepts. My parents constantly dissuaded me from this idea. But I went to college. Uh, I did not graduate initially. It just wasn't for me. And I wound up kind of almost sneaking off and joining, at first, the Air Force. And I went into the Air Force when I was, gosh, 18 years old. It was in the late 70s. And they shipped me from Appalachia, where I was raised, up in the mountains, okay, right near the Cherokee Indian Reservation in a town called Kulahui. And everybody says, where's Kulahui at? I said, well, it's near Tukasegee, Nantahala, Okonelufti, you know, all the big towns. Uh. So I really kind of have to have fun with that because those are all Cherokee villages, but I would point them at where on the map. And uh, I moved from there out to New Mexico. And you talk about culture shock. Suddenly it was flat, it was wide open. You could see nine or 10 miles down the road and see a green elevator or something like that in the distance. So at, at a fairly young age, I got a pretty, pretty, good dose of culture shock moving out to New Mexico, but I absorbed it. I wound up loving it. I would still love to go back out there and spend some time. But from there, I got moved to Washington, D.C., another culture shock. And as a military security specialist with the Air Force, I wound up being accepted to the program to work on board Air Force One uh, when first Carter, then Reagan was president. Uh, And that Probably more than anything, sort of changed the tone of my life, because it, I mean it was it such powerful drama being played out. You would see something on the news, and I could say I know exactly what was going on. You know, in in the background, in a minor role, I was there, and I got to see a lot of interesting stuff. But I I, I met people like Ronald Reagan, George Shultz, um, Alexander Haig flew with him several times as security on the on the flights that they flew. And my primary job, of course, was counterintelligence, counterterror to protect the aircraft and, of course, the dignitary while they were there. But then we secured the aircraft once they were off doing whatever they were doing
0: uh,
1: and kept the installation secured back so that we could maintain a very um, tight physical, electronic, biological security around these aircraft that were flying people all over the world. And back then, we didn't have a lot of computers. We didn't have a lot of high technology. We depended on uh, very tight procedural security. I don't know what they do now, but I know what they did then. And it was, uh, it would have been all but impossible to have done something to one of those aircraft or to gain access to one of those dignitaries except when they were in foreign countries. And that's probably when we were the most vulnerable. Um, I can say from that experience, I served with some of the best people that you can imagine. Some of the deepest thinkers, I mean, Bob Dole, um, even people like Tip O'Neill, John Towers. I remember having a couple of minor conversations with him that just left me with an impression of these people are, these truly are our leaders in that they were thought leaders. They just weren't in a position of leadership. They were thought leaders. Now, not all of these people had fantastic lives, you know, after that. But in this moment of time, from about 1979 to 1985, a lot of really sharp, good people coalesced. And I guess if I have one thing that I could say about that experience, um, other than just anecdotally, I would tell you that um, I just fell in love with the idea that a few good, dedicated, and selfless people could truly make a difference. And I met so many selfless people. And one of the things that I took away from that, and I bought this later in a gift shop, but it was it's just a little paperweight that has an inscription. You probably can't read it, I'll read it to you. And it says, there's no limit to what a person can do when first you don't care who gets the credit and that's a quote from Ronald Reagan and that stuck with me and I was in my early 20s so how fortunate was I to have had that exposure and to had to have had my eyes open both good and bad to see good and to see evil at such a young age and it really changed the the azimuth of my life from then on forward. I mean, I, I probably carried that with me. I was so young, I probably didn't appreciate the experience. If I could go back now in time and relive it, I might do one or two things differently. But it, it really made a huge impression. And um, that was probably the first phase or stage of my life that uh, that set me up for the rest of my life.
0: What an amazing experience! Oh my goodness! Yeah. So I
1: sat six, seven seats away from either Ronald Reagan or Vice President Bush or these people, and you know we didn't chat them up. You don't talk to these. You know we had a protocol brief where you don't make conversation with them. You know you avoid eye contact where possible. If they engage you, you're allowed to respond, but then keep it short. And um, I remember one time we were with. Vice President uh, Bush and we flew to one of the somewhere in Montana and it was one of the coldest spots on earth and as we landed and we taxied up and it was on a military it was on an Air Force installation I believe it was Maelstrom Air Force Base and we all got up and started putting our coats on and President Bush just kind of looked out the window and there were several general officers standing there waiting on him and they had a little red carpet and they had everybody standing there he just looked out there and he said, it sure is cold out there. And we're just like, yes, sir. And he says, you know, when I was in the Navy as a lieutenant, people like that kept me waiting for hours. I said, yes, sir. He said, just keep the door closed for a minute. It looks pretty cold out there. We'll let them stand out there for a minute. And he was doing this and everyone around him knew he was, you know, half joking. We started putting our coats and stuff on and he said, hey, 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 if I'm not going out there, you don't have to go out there and i just politely said no sir if we don't get out there we get in trouble i'm sorry sir but we have to get down the stairs as quickly as possible he goes well if you're going i'll go and it was just those little moments like that where you kind of get the the measure of a character of a person and uh that that stuck with me later
0: you know a lot of people don't realize or think about the presidents who we've we've had and um their families the thought process behind some of the decisions that they make but even as silly as it sounds getting off of that airplane you know people don't think about Mm -hmm. yeah yeah
1: he played golf and reagan did not president reagan was not a golfer but he wanted to be and vice president bush said well let's go play golf i'll show you what i know and reagan said i've tried it two or three times over the years and never stuck so they scheduled on a Sunday afternoon to come to Andrews Air Force Base because it would be a secure environment where they could play golf and not have a crowd of people around them and all of this and also, you know, better security. So they got out there and I mean, they they hadn't played five holes and Reagan began talking to one of the Secret Service people and one of his staff. And he he looked around and there were several of us ringing that golf course to make sure they had you know, a private but also a secure environment, and Reagan just looked at everybody and said, "Let's stop this. We're ruining all these people's Sundays. All of their Sunday is getting ruined. Let, let's get let's knock this off and get out of here." Mm-hmm. And that also kind of made an impression. because you wouldn't get that out of a lot of people today. But again, little snippets like that lead you to understand the depth of a person's character, and that's why I was proud to. Have worked with that. And it's one of the, one of the defining moments in my life, but probably, probably the one at a young age changed how I was thinking and and doing things.
0: Have you documented any of these things so that you can pass some of these memories down to your family? I just did. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That's, that's one of the great things about podcasting. Yeah, that's amazing. So what's one of your most, um, Maybe we'll start with a humorous memory. Do you have any humorous memories?
1: From those from those days? Yes. Um, I got a lot of humorous memories from my various <laughs> careers that I've had, but from Air Force One, the one that my dad liked, and my dad told it, of course, he was, you know, uh, although a lifelong Democrat, he was very proud of me. You know, he's very proud of, of this exposure. And he liked Reagan and voted for him in the second term to my, you know, to my astonishment. But um, so dad, when he would tell the story, it got embellished a little bit. But the Air Force One that I flew on and, and the the aircraft that I was on were Boeing 707 converted. They were called VC-137As. And It's different from a commercial airliner, but it's a smaller plane. Nowadays, they've got this big 747. I've never seen it, never been on it, have no idea what they do with that. But these were fairly small aircraft. I mean, if you look at the width of your, you know, less than the width of your living room is how long this tube was. And it wasn't outfitted like a commercial airliner, except in the back where the press was and in the very front. The center section of the plane was divided up so that he had an office, he could close a wall it was a movable partition type wall that he could move to have private conversations or they could fold it up but there was open seating in this in the center section where the president had he had a desk and for one reason or another the latrine in the front of the plane was closed off by the steward so i had to walk towards the rear of the plane and i wound up standing and just they just happened to have this partition open and I'm standing there waiting to to use the latrine and I'm standing there and there's three or four people gathered around president Reagan. There's a desk and there's two or three telephones and the red phone rings. And so I'm like, I'm just standing there, you know, I'm not doing anything, but I can't help but notice, you know, that's the red freaking phone. (laughs) What is that? (laughs) This is cold war. This is, I mean, you know, Uh, pre Gorbachev Cold War, you know, and drop off or someone like that. who was premier of the Soviet Union. So very much, you know, you're on the idea that we could go to war with Russia. Red phone. That's not good. President Reagan picked it up. And he says, yes. Yes. And he kind of waves his hand to get everybody to stop talking. And he continues with this. Uh huh. Uh huh. And he makes a couple of little notes on a piece of paper. And he goes, how long do I have to make a decision? Now I'm sitting there. I no longer had to use a battery. You know, I'm like, What the heck? Oh my god. And, I, and at one time I thought I'm probably in the safest place on the planet. But where's my family? You know, and all of these thoughts start running through your my 25-year-old mind, you know. And he hangs up the phone and he sits there and he kind of rubs his brow for a minute. He kind of nods to himself and he picks up the phone, hits a button and says, I've made my decision. I'll have the roast beef and you know. <laughs> talk, you know. <clears throat> About four people in that room exhaled right then because, you know, we didn't, I didn't know what the, red, apparently the red phone was, you know, just to the kitchen or something. But uh, <laughs> that's a story my dad liked to tell and he embellished it a little bit, but you know, that's, that's the truth. Uh, and like I said, there's two or three little instances like that that stuck with me. Uh, I have shared them with my children. Uh, I have, you know, I got a few souvenirs off of the plane that were there um, to be souvenirs to distinguished visitors and stuff. But every time that plane landed, they cleaned everything off the plane. Every stick of gum, every roll of toilet paper, everything came off the plane and was discarded. They never reused anything with the idea of avoiding some sort of biological contaminant uh, poisoning or something like that. We even not we, but the stewards even would take the seat cushions off. We had a, a hospital autoclave in the hangar, and we would autoclave the China and everything, uh, sterilize it to a surgical standard before it would go back on the plane, and then we physically sealed the plane, and it stayed sealed until it was ready to fly again. So when you know pieces of China would get broken, they would take some of the China. They'd get a new set of China donated, they, and despite at the time it was a big controversy, people thought Nancy Reagan was uh, outfitting the White House and Air Force One to her standard at taxpayer expense. That was completely untrue. There was a big controversy. It was You could probably Google it and still find it. Everything that we used was donated. The China companies, they had to be American-based. They would donate it. They could not use it in their advertising that they had donated it. They could say it privately, oh, by the way, this is the same type China that's on Air Force One, but they couldn't use that in any advertising or marketing. And they couldn't have any brand name on the China, just that it was made in USA. So uh, you know, plates and cups and saucers, eventually, you know, you don't have a complete set, and they would give that stuff away to, you know, dignitaries and people. And occasionally I, I got a cup and a saucer and stuff like that. Um, I think I sent you like some of the matchbooks, yeah, you know, things like that. That's off Reagan's Air Force One. And um, the funny thing is the decks of cards. And this is a deck of cards, pair of deck of cards, and it's got, you know, Reagan's signature on it. And, you know, on the back, it's got the presidential seal. It's a little drawer. And when you open it up, you know what's coming. When you open it up, and these are sealed decks of cards that I've kept since, you know, 83 or 84. It's got air force one on it. I don't know if you can see that if there's a reflection, but it also has run, but on the back, you can see this, the joker is Congress.
0: <laughs> that is great. You it know, makes I don't know you... if they
1: kept that up. I know that under president Carter, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't do that. So that's probably somebody's sense of humor that, that worked there. Um,
0: I love that. It does make you wonder if people would be offended these days.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. Nowadays they've oh, been investigations or something, but it was, oh, and you God. know, Reagan had a lot of members in, in, especially if you look at your history, he made friends with Tip O'Neill. Mm-hmm. Um, and although they fought like cats and dogs over policy and stuff, when it was time to stop fighting, he would ride with Reagan, and they would share a drink together and talk and cut up. And you know, there was a there was a time to make a political argument, and there was a time to just be a human being. And, and Reagan and Tip O'Neill himself, who was Speaker of the House at the time, made a point of saying this: there's, "There's no other president could have gotten done what he do- did with a Democratic Congress by force of his personality." And when you were around him, you felt the gravity, but you felt the, the personality. If it sounds like I hero worship the guy, I was 23, 24, 25 years old. And yeah, I probably did a little bit. History paints a slightly different picture of his later years uh, in the White House. A lot of, you know, supposed controversy and stuff. I can tell you, I do not believe, and you cannot to this day convince me, that if presented with the facts and in possession of his full wit, that he would have made any sort of dishonest or disreputable decision. I just don't believe it. Yeah, he
0: was definitely one of those presidents that everybody did get along with and everybody respected. You know, when I was growing up, um, my grandma always said, you know, you don't argue about politics or religion with family. There's just no sense in arguing about it. You can Mm -hmm. believe what you're going to believe. But um, I think that a lot of the the good old folks um, had that mentality of you know we'll we'll argue it out, but then we can put it aside and we can still get along. So.
1: Well, and there was a there's a measure there was a measure of respect. We come, you know, different people can come from different poles, and when they come together for a conversation, if the goal is to be polite, if the goal is to be respectful, and I have a sense of respect for the person that I'm talking understanding I don't agree with them. And I may never, I may constantly wonder how they came to those conclusions. If first you decide that this is going to be a respectful conversation, and even if the other person doesn't follow that, I'm gonna take the high road and stay that way, then, and and I will just tell you uh, in my later life where I was a military analyst and a criminal investigator where I did thousands of interviews over the years, and obviously no one across the desk or the table from me shared my values, I don't think. But I had people thanking me as I was sending them to jail. And I'm not saying that to make myself sound good. It's just that that's one of the things that I picked up. You, If you treat people with the respect that even they don't believe they've earned, they'll appreciate it. A lot of people, secretly don't think they've earned respect a lot of people secretly know things about themselves and they're afraid that you know it if you let them know we're not going to go there let's just keep this on an even keel you can get more out of people that way and you're an interviewer you know this um there's different types of sometimes you have to be antagonistic with people in certain uh, environments to get to get to the truth but I always tried to end it on a note of respect, you know, as just as a human being. And, you know, I tried to not refer to people as scum or punks and stuff like that. You know, it's just let's um, let's shake hands. I understand you're on a different path. Let me know what I can do to help you in the future. And a lot of times that just opens people up. It it opens people. I, I think that people have people are like a balloon and there's pressure. If you provide an outlet. They'll take it every time to relieve that
0: pressure. So true. Um, So one question I have uh, for you is what's one obstacle that you've had? It can be in your military commute or your military career, law enforcement, or just life in general or wherever. What was that one trial that really kind of sticks out to you and how did you overcome that trial or are you still working on it?
1: Well, you know, you, you said it right the first time you said military commute. I was in the Washington, D.C. area. Mm-hmm. It, took, it took me two hours to go 10 miles some days, you know. so that
0: Oh, yes.
1: Yeah, that was a trial I had to overcome right there. I, you know, I know I knew you were going to ask something like this. And um, so I thought about it. And like I said, no one gets to be my age without having more than one life, more than one obstacle and to pick one is the most significant kind of hard. I've kind of broken it. Um, first of all, I think that probably what truly changed my trajectory in life too, in addition to having the opportunity that I had as a young man uh, was having children. And it, I was no longer alone. My decisions were no longer just impactful of me. It impacted other people. And I took that very seriously um i think that you know how i would over how did i overcome this or how do i did i adapt to this is you adopt your thinking you're no longer allowed to take the sharpest edge of an opinion i'm no longer able to push things as far as i would want to maybe as from an emotional side i always had a buffer and i always had a safety that said stop your kids are You know, if you picture your kids standing right behind you, would you, would you take this position? You know?
0: Yeah. I've heard that on the reverse side. That's so funny. You just threw me off there because I haven't heard this in a long time, but my dad always told me, you never know, you could turn around and I might be standing there. So for you to say that, I'm just Uh like, wow, I, I haven't heard that in quite some time.
1: You know, so the family is one significant thing. The other was that, and we didn't talk about this, but in my civilian military career with the Army, yeah, I was trusted at the Pentagon level, um, at both DOD and DA, Department of Army levels, to completely evolve military police law enforcement training and standards. Everything from equipment to how they organized, and all of this was post-OIF-1, and it started when, you know, there was some military police in theater, and they were charged with setting up a police station, and these military police looked at him and said, well, we've never been in one. And that's, you know, that's the anecdote, but it led to the commandant of the MP Corps setting me up into a position where we, we now have to recapture our core policing uh, skill sets. The MP Corps is the most adaptive of all military regiments in the Army. They do things special forces can't do with one set of equipment and one set of training. And so to expect it to be able to manage combat crossings of a river, route reconnaissance, host nation police training, uh, prisoner, you know, internment and resettlement, and at the same time come home to say, uh, you know, Fort Benning, and patrol the post like a civilian police officer. That's a broad skill set, and it's the broadest skill set of all that's required with one, you know, 20-something-week school. So one of the things I was tasked with as a civilian, as the chief of force protection, was evolve all of the training standards. And as we began doing this, because the Army leads the way, next comes the Marine Corps. You know what, this is a great idea. Next comes the Air Force, the Navy. I don't think they've ever got it, but uh, (laughs) well, they don't really have a military police corps. The shore police are not military police. Um, But then you get into, you know, DOD, the NSA, uh, uh, Defense Geospatial, uh, the Defense Logistics Agency. They all have either military or civilian law enforcement officers and they were trained to no common standard. Often even within the department, there was no standard. So we eventually, from 2003 to around 2019 is how long it took, but we wound up with a Peace Officer Standards and Training Commission or post commission, modeled after state post commissions that designed and developed the training and and standards for policing across the DOD. Now, okay, I've said all that, like a, like a resume thing. But imagine being this dumb hillbilly from the Appalachians. Mm-hmm. And the commandant looks at you and says, here's the mission with very little written guidance and oh, with a lot of help, a lot of good selfless people. And, and that's the thing you don't hear enough about government employees is the true selflessness and the true dedication that they have to get it right. Not all of them. There's plenty of fat, lazy people that don't give a hoot about anything except their own paychecks. But the people that I had the opportunity to work with, um, we got that done. And how did I overcome it? Panache. Got to do it. Got to figure it out. Got to go talk to some people. Got to. I spent a lot of time on the road. There was one time I wasn't home three days a month. I was on the road. Let's let's fly here. Let's go here. Let's go. Let's find out how they do it. And with the commandant borrowing his stars, we were able to get an international standard. How do the French police do it? How do the British do it? How do the Italians? How do the Russians do it? And we developed, redesigned and reengineered the military police corps from the inside out um, so that now we're the model for DOD. I didn't do that by myself. I was just um, the guy that was appointed to lead this effort. And I used to say this you know, if they say success, uh, uh, success has many fathers, failure is an orphan. Now, I don't know who all was going to take credit for the work we did, but I knew then who they had picked out as orphans. I was, I was predetermined. Okay. Let's, let's put Reed in charge of it to where if it screws up, you know, he's, he's the orphan that we can put all this on. So with a lot of panache and a lot of help, we changed that. And I will tell you that, um, there were days and you can imagine that, you know, I, I thought, I don't think, let me just, let me just answer your question. I, gosh, I'm all over the place here.
0: No, I love it though. I hope I, love your, I
1: hope your next guest is more organized. <laughs>
0: no this is fantastic these are actually david your stories are my favorite because i feel like i need a whole series just with you because your stories are so vast and they're so important to um keep and hold on to for future generations and um yeah i'm gonna make sure that the show actually gets filed in the government archives there is a way to do that i'll i'll figure it out and do it yeah
1: there there is um there's just i think that all of us, if you look back, and I mean, you look to me, you're very young. If you look back on your life and people look back on their lives for the significant event, like what you're, you're, you've asked me to talk about, it's those moments when you're living the most acute life. Things are important. You're scared of failure. You don't have everything you need to succeed. And you've got to pull it from somewhere deep inside. You've got to surround yourself with the right people because it's only in those most acute moments that you really pull your best out. This is true in in almost every avenue of life, but overall, it's moments like what I described when I was on Air Force One. That's a no-failure zone right there. You could not fail. When I was working with these um, law enforcement standards and training policing standards for all of DOD. You know, it was like there were a lot of really big, important people looking at me, not because I'm important, but because I was the guy. I was the guy that everybody knew my name. And it was zero tolerance for failure. And I think that's when you realize I've got to up my game. I've got to do this. I've got to get it done. Um, Nothing's ever done perfectly. But those are the moments that you take years later and remember as those most acute moments in your life. I think that's probably
0: my answer to you. So true. David, thank you so much for being on the show. Um sure. I wish I had so much more time and maybe I can have you on again. Um, your stories are are really truly inspirational and this is one of the more meaningful, all of my shows are meaning. So I should be careful how I word this, but it's one of the more meaningful to me personally, just because I've, I've had time to also get to know you over the last gosh, couple, I feel like at least a year, um, probably more than that. But yeah. Yeah. And it's just been a phenomenal experience and it's not always that you just connect with somebody online. And David and I did that. And and you are always encouraging to the military community and to our law enforcement community, our first responders and very um, loving of America and your sacrifices that you've made over the years, your time, your dedication, and your talents are not unnoticed. So thank you so much for everything that you've done for our country. And You know, as we head into the the election time coming up, I won't get into the politics of it, but, um, I, I truly believe that stories like yours need to be out there so that our younger generation can see how it's supposed to be done. (laughs) So you've been a great example and a great leader. Thank you so um, much
1: for those kind words. Um, It's been my honor to serve in those capacity and, and almost accidentally sometimes, to wind up in these in these positions of responsibility or positions of service so um i would say that it's a confusing time these are confusing times especially for young people so thank you for being the um bully pulpit or the broadcaster to let people know there 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 is a light there is a way there is a path that yeah it may seem sometimes you know not necessarily now but in politically or in our country or in the world that times are dark but try to put it in perspective i mean my dad lived through world war ii you know how much more serious was that than things are now so um there is a way ahead we can do it but like i said it takes a little bit of selflessness it takes a little bit of dedication and some panache thank
0: you thank you you very much for having me thank you and thank you everybody for listening please be sure to share this show especially with your, if you're listening and you have kids or grandkids, I think that this one's a really important one. And David kept it clean for us today. I don't even think we had one cuss word. So thank you, David. I didn't realize he, I was
1: famous for that, but maybe. Yeah.
0: I mean, <laughs> no, I was thinking a lot of times, you know, there's a slip up here or there once in a while. I, I even oh. slip up and, um, this is a great show for all audiences. So thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Thanks. Well, thank thanks you, everybody. Pat.
1: Take
0: care. Thank you. You too.